92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program, New York City's Landmarks Reimagined, features a conversation with Weston Walker, Nicholas Garrison, Iran Chen, Randolph Gurner, and Susan Sanasi, Editor-in-Chief of Metropolis Magazine. It was recorded on February 4th, 2017, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. We're going to talk about my very favorite subject, because landmarks are incredibly important to any city, but then how do you, how do you maintain the mystique of landmarks, and how do you bring them forward to a new generation without actually just preserving old buildings? So, uh, and those are noble and great things to do, but uh, it, it's gonna be really interesting because we have four, four, four of you, four men, <laughs> Uh, who will who will uh, tell us about their projects? Because I think it's really important for you to know first of all to get familiar with the, what the projects are, so that we can discuss them and you will develop your own questions. I I have hundreds of them for them. So come on up, panel, in alphabetical order. Aaron Chan. Is that Randolph? Randolph Gurner. And then there's Randy, Randy, and then uh, Nicholas, Nicholas Garrison, and then Weston Walker. He's always the last. It's usually, I'm always the last because of the SZ. So um, this is really uh, key to all of us. So where's it? Okay, Aaron. Take, let's take a look at your project. Okay. Okay, I mean, this, these slides are not necessarily uh, in organized order, but I'll tell you a little bit. 10J Street is um, a building in Dumbo. It was built in 1897 as a refinery, a sugar refinery building, factory, on the water in Dumbo. As you know, Dumbo at that time was a, a great source for manufacturing, coffee and sugar refinery, especially in the beginning of the 20th century. This uh, industry was huge, uh, and actually 50% uh, of the uh, sugar uh, in, in the United States was supplied by, by this area. Anyways, it has a very interesting story because back in 1940s, the building that was situated right on the water, and imagine the ships coming in with the sugar canes, right? loading sugar canes and taking uh, sugar out, half of that building was demoed in the middle for a reason that nobody uh, knows exactly. It wasn't documented. And so it left three facades of that original factory building intact, but the center, what used to be the heart of the building, became sort of an outside. And then it was wrapped with stucco and converted into a row, um, um, storage room, uh, storage uh, space until very recently. We were hired four years ago to convert the building into a class A office building. Now, can you imagine that Dumbo right now is a highly uh, residential neighborhood, and it seems to the developer appropriate to put a, an office building uh, instead. And so the challenge was really, what do you do with, uh, not what you do with the existing three facades, the historical one, which we renovated, of course, but what do you do with the one that is facing the water that was never really designed as a facade. And what so, we've done is... So do we have any more slides? So, so basically, what we have done, and, and again, I don't know if we have the... What are we looking at? Tell us. One second. 
Well, what we're looking here is at the lobby, but what I want to show you is the facade, and I'll see it here. What you see here is the two, the original building kind of cut in half, and you see the right piece is the one that was demoed, and the new facade that was implemented, which is a highly modern, crystallized uh, glass facade, which kind of carries the story of the, the crystal nature of the sugar, but also the story, the, the narrative of the building broken into two and created sort of a unperfect uh, surface. Uh, this uh, sparked uh, a big uh, discussion conversation in Landmarks. I don't see any image of the rendering. I don't know if I think you're missing it. There's some more, click around. Don't go back, go forward, always I'm forward. trying, I'm trying to go forward. You want to try it? Okay, we need an expert, Chardonnay, come okay. up here and we'll, we'll But as she does that, I'll just say that the, the idea of adopting a modern facade to an old historical building was very interesting. There you go, that's one of them. Keep going, one more. There we go, okay. There it is, that's it sparked a, a pretty uh, intense conversations with the Landmark Preservation Commission because some of the commissioners felt that how we can apply modern uh, technology, modern facade to an old historical building. Uh, however, the idea of kept keeping the narrative of the historical story of what happened at, at the neighborhood and the uh, integrity of the three other facades which were really original but the other one was never a built facade of the original building. Uh, sort of prevailed, and I think as an adaptive reuse building, becoming from a factory to a warehouse to a class A building, this is a fascinating uh, sort of solution. Okay, so next. Next we have FX Fowl and uh, the Statue of Liberty Museum. So thanks. Um, so the Statue of Liberty is probably the most recognized landmark on earth, um, and maybe the most overutilized in terms of political messages. Um, and our task really was to try to find some way to bring the actual experience to the island uh, up, up to the, the sort of importance of the museum itself. So it's, it's really weird to go to this island and see this thing 300 feet above your head. And um, what we really tried to do is try to figure out a way to add to the park. The park itself is a landmark. Um, but it was designed in the 30s as kind of this French formal garden, and it didn't really have anything to do with anything central, anything interesting. Um, the great thing is, though, this is the most amazing view in all of this area. When you arrive on the island, you see straight across to the 9-11 site and the One World Trade, and it's just an amazing place. And then you turn around, you see her, um, and she just rises above these trees in ways that are really amazing. So. Um, really, what we tried to do was, um, and it doesn't really matter, what we really tried to do was engage this formal circle that Johnson Burgee had imposed on the island in uh, 1986 during the restoration in a, in a formal way that was kind of monumental itself, but then to kind of fold the landscape up so that we added to the park experience itself. So um, what we were seeking was a timeless kind of uh, building that would be both a building um, and a piece of landscape, and that would uh, provide essentially an experience for everyone, whether they were interested in the history of the museum and the, and the statue itself or not. So, um, so we're looking forward to getting deeper into this because this, this is such a heart and soul issue for those of us who are immigrants to this country that it's a, it's a very uh, 
a culturally shaping moment that, that I can't wait for one to, to understand how all of that worked and all the, uh, all the, the, the building, what the building represents and what it contains. So, um, and then we have, who has? Okay, Hi. the Beekman. Yes, um, I'm Randy Gurner, by the way, and I uh, was involved with a very interesting project, which today we call the Beekman, and it was the adaptive reuse of an 1880s office building. Uh, and in 1880, an office building was something that was relatively unknown. Um, the idea was to create an office building or a building for shops that were actually moved on into the interior of the building. New York in the 1880s was essentially three and four story buildings and there was a population downtown that exceeded 500,000 people. So it was very, very dense, much denser than by today's standards because of course, we're all up in the air. So you can see up above me the interior atrium. This is one of the first atriums that was installed in the United States. Of course, atriums date back to, um, to Italy, but um, it, it was a nine-story atrium around which dozens and dozens of storefronts were located. So you would be able to, as a customer, come and visit your doctor, your lawyer, your accountant, and all in the convenience of a tall building. This was considered a tremendously tall building at the time, and people were afraid of tall buildings because of the fires that typically occurred in New York City at the time. Um, however, this was also one of the first, quote, fireproof buildings. Essentially, it was made of non-combustible materials that were somewhat invented during the, the Civil War period, certainly refined. So we can get into it a bit more. And this was an adaptive reuse into a hotel. This is the restoration of the atrium. I encourage all of you to visit it. It's got wonderful restaurants run by Tom Colicchio and Keith McNally. Um, and you can see what the atrium was like when we found it. It was essentially a building that was abandoned for six to eight years and neglected for 50 years because it was a building type that no longer functioned well. And our idea was to develop it and adapt it to a new use, a hotel, a restaurant, and actually a condominium building. It's a, it's a series of three buildings. We call it a trilogy, um, vintage 1880, vintage 1890, and vintage 2016. Okay, so we're gonna, we, we're gonna dig into this building because it's uh, one, of, uh, one of my many favorite stories in New York on how something gets saved and revived and, and returned back to the public and, uh, and to the cultural realm. But let's hear from uh, an out of, not out of towner, but he is an out of towner. He's with the studio gang whose original uh, um, office was founded in Chicago and uh, Weston is here to talk about their New York project. Yeah, um, we, um, so we have had an office here for about three years now. Um, and one of our focuses has been um, working at the Natural History Museum, which is a very important um, institution in the city. And really is, for this discussion, I think the, the interesting aspect of it is that it's, it's all about the evolution of the campus. Over um, 150 years, they'll be celebrating their um, 150 year anniversary in 2019. Um, so uh, the image you saw there is a rendering of the master plan that was first done by Calvert Vox in the 1870s. That image from the 1890s, the earliest known 3D representation of the campus master plan, which was envisaged as a, as a 
kind of a, a full perimeter block rectangle with cross axes through the center um, in what was then called Manhattan Square. And um, so these are, this is, on the left side, it's kind of the state of the campus today where you can see that that vision was never really um, realized and for, there's lots of interesting reasons why that's the case. I think uh, the primary reason is the incredible transformation of the neighborhood, the Upper West Side, uh, becoming an incredibly dense, amazing neighborhood and the importance of the park and the dialogue of what is now Theodore Roosevelt Park and the campus and the way those two things have kind of danced and grown over time is a really interesting story. Um, so our design really was looking for a way to heal some of the accretion that had happened, kind of piecemeal additions over time, to restore the clarity of that master plan, which is really, a, it was a great plan. It, it really facilitated light and air and visitor flow. And so we tried to restore that connectivity, eliminate dead ends. This, this drawing shows where we're connecting, uh, making 30 new, we're, we're touching 10 adjacent buildings built between 1870 and 2010. 30 different connection points between our project, the Gilder Center, and the surrounding campus um, on five levels. Um, so that drawing shows that. And uh, the interior of the space um, was, um, the idea about it was, was to kind of embody the mission of, of the institution, which was to encourage people to, um, this is not their exact mission, but essentially to encourage people to love science and to um, to try to create a more informed citizenry, which um, is something that has huge implications going all the way up to global politics and national security. So I think the idea that um, we, we look to natural references to create a kind of space where um, that just make you want to explore and um, places like canyons or, or geologic glaciers or um, natural forms, the forces of nature that um, kind of innately speak to us and make us want to go learn more and explore more. That was kind of the idea for this and, and we hope that that will be how it works when it's completed in 2020. And then of course on the exterior, the, the notion that this is a building in a park. It's not, it doesn't have a, a prominent street address as the Central Park West Side does. This is facing Columbus Avenue. So uh, we really wanted to try to extend the landscape across the building so that it felt kind of situated in the park and of the park. So let's talk about the, the one thing that comes to mind when, when we're talking about uh, designing around or with already existing landmarks. So there is such a thing as the weight of history and it could really intimidate you. I mean, it could sort of freeze you, but you, as architects, you can't be frozen. You have your men of action, so you really need to charge forward. So um, uh, why, don't we, why don't we find out from um, Randy there was, there was this building that had all this amazing history. I mean, you're, first of all, you're, you're digging in, you're looking at the materials, you're looking at the building, you're looking at the uses, you're looking at the, the idea that we now think we are inventing the multi-use development, the central atrium, all of those things that date back. Uh, many many years. So, and then and then the whole idea of a, a building being designed at its height in terms of material use. So, for you, what does that mean when you start rethinking and redeveloping and re re-equipping and and reformulating this building in a way that honors the past but then takes it forward? Well, that, that's a challenging question. I might not have a two-minute answer, but um, the thing that impressed me most about the building, well, first of all, I, I might have 
I mentioned that it was conceived during the Gilded Age in the late 1880s. And the building in many ways was perceived originally as being somewhat excessive. It was a combination of a variety of architectural styles, uh, neo-Renaissance, uh, Greco, uh, and it, it was a peculiar combination of styles at the time. In fact, it was even capped by two Queen Anne towers. Uh, which generally Queen Anne was a style that was reserved more for residential architecture rather than, than business architecture. Um, but I realized that the architect was actually celebrating the structure and the new innovations of architecture at the time. What they were doing is they were expressing the columns on the exterior of the building, making them important. They were expressing the, st the steel um, on the interior of the atrium that, that actually cantilevered into the atrium. Uh, and they, they, were, they harnessed ideas with cast iron and created a great deal of decoration in cast iron, but at the same time they were celebrating the structure. So our challenge was when we designed a new building, the third building in the, in the trilogy, um, it was a 600 foot tall building, considerably taller than anything else um, in, that had built prior to that on the site. And we felt that it was important to celebrate structure. And the way we did it is we, I'm a big fan of Beton Brut, which is exposed cast in place uh, concrete. And I thought that I'd take the structure and instead of hiding it behind a curtain wall or window walls or brick, I decided to push the structure forward to the outside of the building. So all of a sudden, when you look at the outside of the building, it's telling you the story of how the building actually functions, the structure of the building. All the columns are on the outside. There are large X-braces. The X-braces are designed to resist earthquake loads and also wind loads. And that was very consistent with the idea that Sullivan and Farnsworth had in celebrating the structure and the innovation that was associated with the historic building. So I'm really glad to hear that because it's, it's so interesting to me. Buildings, uh, especially modern glass buildings, rarely, to, rarely tell us what they do and how they're made. And, and those lessons that a, a viewer, a kid in school, somebody who wants to study architecture uh, can, can't get that idea that this is why it's made this way, and this is why it looks this way, and isn't it interesting? Well, there's such beauty in, in the structural elements of our buildings. Think about the historic cast iron buildings that we see in Lower Manhattan. There again, the structure of the buildings, the columns, the spandrel beams, they were all celebrated. They were ornamented, they were decorated. Um, we're not in a decorative mode these days in architecture. In fact, we're, we're, we're stressing minimalism. But still, you can still have the basic philosophy of expressing and celebrating the structure of a building. I think that's a very important thing in my work. So, uh, did, uh, I mean, Aaron, um, for you, this is, it's, it's really interesting because you're, you're dealing with an industrial building, an industrial building that is now sought out by many workplace developers because people are looking, the authenticity issue is really important. So, so the, the uh, sugar refinery is obviously a massive industrial building that then uh, gives way to an entirely different function, but at the same time, it's designed so that it can actually be used 
more by different generations, which is, which is not so of our current buildings or maybe buildings from the 1950s on. It's, they're kind of singular use uh, and very difficult to adapt many of them because of the way they're designed. So what did you learn from working on this building? Because I think as an architect, you're looking for, for things that you can invent, you can be part of, at the same time uh, in, be inspired by what's there. Well, first of all, I agree that it's a very challenging uh, uh, things to tackle. It's much easier, for, I think, for architects to just build a new building. Uh, but the buildings, if they're good, they're telling us stories. And, and landmark building, historical buildings, tell us stories about our past. And that's the beauty of cities, right? There are layers of stories that are being told about who we are and who we were, etc. The nice thing about adaptive reuse is that you take an old story and you write the continuation of the same story. It's not stopped at a certain point, but rather continues. And so when we've looked at an industrial building, the beauty of it is, is obvious because the authenticity of the materials, the, the logs of woods, the brick, the high ceilings are things that you don't, you don't see in, in buildings today. But taking a building that, that its original purpose was obsolete, that you can't anymore use it for what it was used to, and inserting a new meaning to it, and by that also designing an element that belongs to our time, to our era, and marry the two together in a way that tells a story of continuation, I think it's fascinating. So how do you do that without being hokey? Because I think there's a lot of these kind of gratuitous references and because people think that, that to tell the story of what was there, they need to do all kinds of calisthenics about some revealing something about the building. So how do you do that without resorting to some sort of cheap trick? Well, it's, it's a great question. I think we all kind of deal with that situation in, in, in different degrees. The, for me, when you preserve an element of the history, preserve it well. Don't touch it in a way that, that, that changes it necessarily. But the elements that you add should be of a contemporary language. Any imitation of the past to me is cokey. If, if you try to do an element that looks like the historical one, it becomes in a way a lie of, of what we're really doing. So for me, what I try to do is separate uh, the elements that are gonna be purely preserved to the best degree to bring them back to their old glory and then take the elements that we're adding as new and treat them as new in terms of technology, in terms of the elements that are important to us today. And like anything else, it could be bad or good depending on the outcome. So, so a class A office building, does that mean that these are Fortune 500 companies or usually, usually they like to operate out of the glass box and uh, be very uh, opaque in their doings and, uh, oh, okay, we're not gonna get into that. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think what's really interesting, so class A today in New York means is it, is it really important, innovative, new businesses? Who, who occupies this? Yeah, that's an extremely interesting uh, question, maybe for a different panel, but Class A today has changed is, you know, is, is, is a definition because today technology and young companies that uh, um, are coming up are not looking anymore for those, you know, insignificant glass towers. They're looking for authenticity. They're looking to be connected to their neighborhoods. They're looking to be connected to their environment. And they're very attracted into these um, 
uh, old buildings because it sort of generates uh, who they are or it expresses who they are as, as uh, companies. Innovation for them is also connection to uh, authenticity, to the neighborhood, to the people that live around you, to its history. And that's a very interesting trend uh, that kind of explain what happens to Midtown Towers these, these days where are being neglected. And, and I think that there's half of the companies are going to Hudson Yards and downtown, which are kind of con continuation of what we've done before, tall glass towers. And a lot of them are moving downtown uh, to, or to Brooklyn into areas where there's more authenticity. So, so is there like a storytelling hour in these offices where they can say, no, I mean, if I'm in that building, I want to know what's going on. And is, is, there, is there some sort of program that sort of connects them to that world that was? Because it's a very palpable example of what, what was the power of New York at one time and how, how it shipped the goods that it, it made or refined. So, so it's really interesting to, to, to tell a story of a past today. And does that, does the building help do that? Well, what we've tried to do is extend through the architecture that story to the degree that we can. If, if the building was restored, let's say, to the original f uh, phase or uh, place that it was, with our new addition, it might not be obvious that the building was cut in the middle mm -hmm. in the 1940s. It might not be obvious that things that have happened here that created a change. So what we want to do is basically capture the idea of change through time. The idea that it used to be one thing and then another thing, and who knows, maybe in 50 years it's going to be something else, and express it through the architecture so you feel it when you're there. So, Nicholas, the, the, um, uh, the Statue of Liberty Museum, I mean, uh, we all have huge fondness uh, for the Emma Lazarus poem, for this colossal uh, lady in the harbor, and uh, it's, it's a very emotional thing. And so you're trying to build a building that will contain the story. I mean, you're working with, um, who's the ESI? ESI, so one of the best exhibition uh, firms in New York. So um, how did you approach this? Because there's a material story there, there's a, there's a, a kind of orientation story there. So can you talk a little bit about how do you relate to something so emotionally wrapped in our culture that doesn't do it harm, that lifts it up that, again, isn't hokey and silly. So, so what's your approach? Well, there's, there's two things. One is the, the building as kind of a container and as an experience. And then there's the, the stuff inside and the story and the narrative that it's trying to tell. And we actually designed the building before the narrative for the actual experience within the museum uh, had been articulated which was unfortunate because here we are imagining what it could be. Um, and about two years later, because it takes a long time to do these things, um, the um, exhibition architects come along and they say, well, we want you know, this, this, and this. And so I'll, uh, just, just to kind of tell you, we, we were imagining a, a, a building that was lifted up and all the things that we had, but largely glass because of the site. Um, Imagine that the views, we think, to New Jersey are just almost as great as the views to Manhattan and the views to other places. And that island is so small um, that there's views all around. And so we, we had imagined a mostly glass building. Um, and as you can imagine, 
uh, exhibitions nowadays are really high tech and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of restrictions to daylight. Um, and so while we wanted this beautiful pavilion that was of the island, a piece of landscape, um, by degree it got more closed in. Um, and so there's a, there's, a, there's a really very powerful film being planned for kind of explaining the, 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 the story of the, the idea and the construction, the restoration, but also the meaning of the, of the statue for people. And, um, and then you go out and you start seeing some of the artifacts that have been preserved. The, the one key piece though for us and remained was the torch. So you go in now to the museum and the, there's this wonderful torch that's kind of sitting there um, if you go in. And the, the torch is in this dark room. Um, it's, it's, they're trying to light it from both within and without. And you experience this thing and it's the most important artifact of all time in terms of the museum because this torch was on her arm for almost 100 years. Um, and when it was restored in 1986, the torch was taken off. Um, and a replica of closer to the original torch, because this one had evolved and changed over time, um, to becoming more of a glass torch. It was never glass at the beginning. Um, but here it was, it's beautiful, and it's been restored for 86, and we thought, we, we have to design around this artifact. It's the most important artifact. And when you think of liberty, you don't think of anything but the torch. The torch is this kind of lantern, this symbol, this incredible, I mean, Liberty Mutual uses it, right? So um, the, that flame is kind of the spirit of the, of the monument. And so here it was, and there was quite honestly a struggle whether or not the torch was gonna make it um, into the museum. There was, there was a lot of debate on that. And- um, You mean Ed didn't want it? I'm not going to tell you. So the, um, but, but I would just say that it didn't, it didn't fit with the original narrative. The original narrative was to create a space that you would contemplate the statue, not contemplate an object, um, the, the big space. Um, but, you know, everybody, if, if you kind of do a diagram of what people do when they come off the boat, they don't go to the museum. They go straight to the statue. They all do that John Lennon photo, right, from the beginning where you kind of in front of the statue, that, that kind of selfie moment right there is 90% of the people go to the statue and they do this thing. So we argued, you've already been to the statue. You've already seen it. Now you're gonna find out how it came to be. And so that, that kind of emptiness and that aha moment of saying, oh, well, there's the statue. If in a prescribed narrative of kind of exactly what you see and when you come in, if that were true, maybe it would work. But it's not true. You're going to see the statue on the boat. It's the best view of all um, when you come in. So really, we thought you know, that torch was really huge. And that piece of geology, really, where you kind of lift it up and there's this vitrine and the, and the torches there, is really the, um, the one piece that um, we fought really, really so, hard to keep. Uh, what version is going to be restored? Because there was one, the one that was paraded around the Thanksgiving Day Parade when they, it was taken off and the new high-tech LED uh, souped-up torch got put up there. And so this, and that, that little torch was kind of braced with uh, metal and all of that. So what torch so are you the putting torch up? That's, the torch that is being, it's literally being moved. The artifact that was taken off her arm in 1986 um, was restored to 1986, okay. right? When when its last iteration, it's still quite beautiful. I mean, it's got all these panes. It's got 
something like 6,200 watt bulbs in it right now. That might change, but um, but the, the actual torch is is a, an artifact, and we're not touching it. Okay. We're just bringing that moment of history back into this museum and explaining what happened. It was originally a solid flame with gold leaf, um, and over time it, it was changed. So, yeah. um, so we're really proud of that. We think that kind of connection. I mean, there's just to say that. Um, Originally, our idea was to actually carve out the terplen, which is the, the dirt around the fort, make a glass roof in the shape of Richard Morris Hunt's glass or pyramid, because the base was very Egyptian uh, pyramidal base. And we said, well, we can make that out of glass, recreate Richard Morris Hunt's original, more uh, in the order of kind of intervention, but have people actually be in the statue when they're learning about the statue. Mm -hmm. Um, and for budget reasons and security reasons, we ended up moving our idea to another part of the island. But that whole idea of kind of integrating with her was um, a big thing. So I can talk about materials and all this other stuff all day, but um, that's really the piece. Our building is different in many, many ways, but it uses the same granite and much of the same palette. Well, and, and I think that's, that's really important because what do you bring forward in a historic preservation and what do you dramatize and what do you, what do you make uh, transparent to future generations? And I think that those questions are really important. So, uh, Weston, uh, first of all, when, how does a Chicago firm get a plum New York project? Uh, this, it was an RFP process. RFP, uh, so, okay. Yeah. Lots of interesting conversations, and um, but yeah, it was a competitive process. Okay, so so that site is really interesting for its location and for the various buildings that are there. So when you started studying what's there, the original uh, brick building and the original towers, and then the, the addition with the, that kind of super sphere inside, and, and, uh, and then so how, how were you thinking of your addition in, in the special shape that it takes to relate to those buildings and also to bring forth the new interest in nature, because we do have a new interest in nature. So can you kind of describe sure, that yeah. timeline? Um, I think uh, our, as it took a really long time to understand that campus. It's incredibly complex. There's 20, over 20 interconnected buildings. So they call them sections. So you're trying to remember if you're in section 13 or section 15, you get lost, everybody gets lost. Um, so wrapping our head around that was the, was the first step. And then appreciating what that campus represents historically, um, it's not just old buildings, it's, it is in a way a, a record of the evolution of architecture in this city over 150 years. It, uh, the, the first building, section one, uh, was designed by Calvert Vox, a, um, a, a Victorian Gothic style brick building. Um, then when the 77th Street facade came in, um, only about 15 years later, um, it was a, a Romanesque revival, um, Katie Bergen Sea project that was the, the style of the day. When it turned around the corner, Central Park West, um, the uh, Roosevelt Memorial Building is a Beaux-Arts classical kind of Roman revival building. Um, and then there's a bunch of modern uh, kind of utilitarian buildings that you can't really see on the interior. And then there's Polshek's project, the Rose Center, which is an um, incredible high-tech modernist uh, building from the, for, from the beginning of the new millennium. So I think seen in that context, um, we our first our first um, principle 
was that the building that we do should be of its time because that is the legacy of this landmark. It, it, is, um, it is a record and we're, 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 we're making our mark in, uh, at this time. Um, so something contemporary and something that it did express the mission, I think was important and got us off on a path of researching nature um, and understanding how people interact with spaces in nature and why they like to do that. And then to make the connection between that and what people will do in this building was, was kind of an aha moment where we, we started to think about, you know, being in great spaces in nature, like what, that is actually the exact way we want people to feel in this building and that's gonna make the building work because we need to have people explore this building. We need, we, another thing we needed to do is make the, the, func the contents of the building visible. So we're also using structural concrete. Um, it's actually um, spray applied in this case. Um, the, the, the interior of the building, the shape is made from the fluid material of concrete. So we had a lot of, we had the ability suddenly to explore these different kinds of forms and um, this exciting kind of language and use um, structural ideas like arches and bridges to make the structure more porous so that, um, that, that, you, so that visitors would have kind of a, a a menu available to them of what they could do when they come in, which is not really, uh, that, that's maybe not um, a success of some of the older buildings. They don't often reveal what, uh, what's on the menu. And so people get lost or they have to get their map out or they stare at their phone. So um, I think those, those are the kinds of things that we were thinking of as we started to, to develop this. And we, um, we were interested in ideas of flow um, literally visitors and people flowing through the space in an efficient way, in a safe way, in an accessible way. Um, but um, that also impacted our, the way we thought about making physical models, which is an important part of, of our practice. And we did things like um, got a torch out and melted an ice block on our patio in February and just looked at what, what is flow and what is erosion and to, to start to understand the order of um, how material in the natural world is shaped by energy in the natural world. So um, those are the kinds of things that, um, that led to the, this particular design. So it looks like from the forms, it looks like there's gonna be conversation about that too uh, for the visitors. The, the form of the building itself is, is uh, really revealing of some of the natural processes that you're trying to uh, show throughout the building. So the form, the form can inform us, right? Yeah, it's not, um, to be clear, it's not a geology exhibit. No. So, but. Um, but I think it is, um, uh, that, so that, and that's an important part of our practice. Every, every project we do, um, you know, Randy was speaking earlier about expressing structure and expressing materiality. That's kind of fundamental to our approach. So um, to be able to have a young person come to this building and put their hand on a wall and touch it and feel it's concrete, it's kind of cold, and that's actually what's holding up the building. It's not layers, it's not covered. Um, I, had a, I had a teacher once tell me that um, architecture was a box that looks good on the inside, inside of a box that looks good on the outside. Um, I, I don't agree with that. I think that um, the, the, the essence of the building is what connects people to, um, to the place and to the desire to, to feel inspired in that wow moment. I mean, we're really excited that if a group of school kids comes into the space, what will their faces say? You know, and that was, the, those kinds of moments were driving our, our, um, 
our process. So designing a building for to reveal the, the working of the, of the natural world must have been like catnip to the uh, to Studio Gang because your founder Jeannie Gang has been uh, really interested in the the natural world and how does how do buildings relate to it and how how the buildings are informed by it. So can you talk a little bit about the, some of those conversations? Yeah. I, um, uh, Jeannie is a great lover of nature, and that's what um, that's kind of at the center of our process also. And we think about our buildings as part of an ecosystem, and we think about the people in them as part of an ecosystem. So, um, uh, and that that thinking can be scaled up to a city, which is its own kind of ecosystem and um, interconnected web of relationships between people and communities, and, um, and you know of other species, and uh, so I think that it's about relationships um, and thinking, thinking like an ecologist, um, not just about the object, but about the the activity around the object and the relationships that that object can foster, create, negate, and in this case, it's a, it's creating um, uh, uh, places where people can connect together to learn and to connect with the natural world. So. Um, I think ecosystem is the is the best way to describe it. That's lovely. So, Randy, uh, relationships. I mean, I think that this is really interesting because as a, as an architect working in the 21st century, you have to dig. You had to dig into something of another time, and and if you're a really wonderful architect and not filled with the usual ego stuff, and I I don't think you are, but <laughs> but. But I, if you learn something from how things were done, and you, you learn something about materiality, and you learn something about, for instance, the atrium, that is one of the first American atria uh, in a city that is, that is kind of revelatory of, of the times, that it was a very progressive time, although it was the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age was inventive for the bucks that they had to spend. So, so can you talk a little bit about the relationship of your relationship with the material that you found and the, the craftsmanship you found and how you figured out how to save those things and how to integrate them into this, this modern reinterpretation? Well, you know, it, it is interesting. One of the biggest challenges we had with the historic restoration was to take a building that essentially, by today's standards, we can't build. The, the building codes don't, wouldn't allow us to build the historic building as it, as it exists today. Um, because uh, probably 25% of the building is, is made of cast iron. And cast iron and fire don't get along. It's sort of, they, fire would dissolve cast iron very quickly. Fortunately, and that happened many, many times to cast iron buildings. So how do we take this historic building and, and give it the comforts that people are demanding of modern buildings and at the same time give it the protection that people are demanding of modern buildings? And because we've developed over the years so many new systems that allowed us to, to preserve the cast iron and in fact at the same time fireproof it. Um, by today's standards, our definitions of, of fireproofing. So it, we, an atrium 
as an example, is a space we're not allowed to design anymore here in New York City and throughout many jurisdictions in the United States because essentially they're giant flues. And if a fire broke out at the bottom, it would find its way to the top and smoke would dissipate throughout the entire building. But we were able to create a whole series of new systems and combine them to make this, in fact, a fireproof building. Um, and not only a non-combustible building, but we have systems where there are automatic systems. If a fire broke out, the entire atrium would be enclosed with, within eight seconds. Um, and so we wouldn't have the dissipation of, of smoke throughout the entire building. Uh, there are new fire systems and fans that draw, draw the smoke and the flames out of the building. Uh, we have ways of accessing and egressing the building that didn't exist before. But all of this was pushed into the background. You don't perceive that, you don't feel that, you can experience it, hopefully never experience some of those systems. Um, but at the same time, you, you feel the comforts of a modern building. You feel cool in the, in the summertime and you feel warm in the wintertime. The atrium brings in light as it always has, but yet what we've done is we've, we've somewhat protected that light so that, so that it is ecologically appropriate. Um, the building is now a LEED certified building as well, which was quite a feat all by itself. And so it's, it's a way of bring, the idea is to try to bring new systems, push them into the background so they're not dominant, but yet create a building that has the comforts of a modern building. So do we have time for a question? Actually, we don't have time for questions from this panel, but um, since it is the last panel of the day, if you are willing to, to stay after and mingle and answer some questions, I'm sure um, they might have some questions for you. But we do have to wrap it up, unfortunately. Um, thank you so much for joining us for the day, and if you were here yesterday for both days. Thank you so much to all the panelists, and have a great rest of the weekend. Thank you Good for night. listening Thank to you. this 92Y program. Thank you. For more information, visit 92Y.org. This program is copyright 2017 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.